came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its walls for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabil. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the heights above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come, and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the cliffs of the rock and on all thorns and in all pastures. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor those, with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. 
for curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. But it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah, the priest, and Zechariah, the son of Jebirachiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Hashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Ramaliah's son, now therefore behold, the Lord brings over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will, fl- will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, both to the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living in the, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it, shall, it is because there is no light in them. 
They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see the trouble and the darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of Gentiles. Uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 through chapter 9 verse 7. Now I want you to stay in Isaiah chapter 9 for our passage this morning. And I want to ask you a question. My question for you is why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Okay, don't answer that out loud. Think about it in your head. Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? What does the birth of Jesus signify? What does the Bible say is the primary reason for the birth of Jesus? I mean, all the time we hear he's the reason for the season. What does that mean? What does it mean when people say he's the reason for the season? You see, at least from my observation, we tend to focus on one aspect of the birth of Jesus. Jesus came to provide me with salvation. Or we might say he came to provide the world with salvation. If this is what we limit the birth of Jesus to then we are neglecting a significant, if not the significance, of the birth of Jesus Christ. So this morning I want us to consider this very familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a passage that we just read. Of course, I read it in context for our scripture reading so you understand it a little bit better. But I want us to consider this passage because in this time of year, we usually focus on the first two lines. That's 25% of it. I want us to focus on the whole thing, especially the last 
90% of it. So let me just remind you of the context that's happening. We just read the context. Okay? Let me just remind you of what we just read in a little bit different words. So Isaiah chapter 9 is set in the context that runs from Isaiah chapter 7 all the way to Isaiah chapter 12. That is one context. And when we go back to Isaiah chapter 7, we see that Judah, the southern kingdom of the divided kingdom, you remember back in 931 B.C., none of us were there, but you remember back in 931 B.C., after Solomon dies, his kingdom's divided between Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. The southern kingdom that's made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, takes the name the kingdom of Judah. And so Judah in the south is facing the imminent threat of invasion by Israel in the north and its ally, Syria. And so Isaiah the prophet goes to Ahaz, who is king of Judah, and tells him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because Judah will not be conquered by this alliance between the northern kingdom and Syria. They won't be conquered. Your house will be established on One condition, if you trust the Lord in this matter, if you trust the Lord, he will establish you. And so then the Lord says to Ahaz, ask for a sign, ask for a sign, and I will confirm to you that this word is true. And Ahaz responds, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask the Lord. I'm not going to test the Lord. Why does Ahaz say that? Ahaz says that because he's already put his trust in a man named Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. You can read that in 2 Kings. It explains this whole context. So Ahaz is not going to trust the Lord. He's trusting the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. And then the Lord says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, right? I'm going to give you a sign. Here's the sign. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This sign of this virgin birth of Emmanuel is a sign that the coming judgment on Judah, the Assyrian, not the Syrian, but the Assyrian invasion of Judah, is the hand of the Lord to bring judgment on them because of their disobedience and unbelief. This sign is also given so that Judah will know and understand that after God's judgment comes upon them, he will also Restore them. And so, as we move through the context, we see in chapter 8, this name Emmanuel appears two more times. Appears two more times where it says God is with us. And then we come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 begins by telling us the prophecy of the Assyrian invasion. This Assyrian invasion and all the horrors that it brings will not last forever but that there will be a child born, a son given, who will be of the line of David, 
who will be the king of the Jews, who will be God in the flesh. Chapter 10 tells us what's going to happen to Israel's enemies and how there will be a faithful remnant of Jewish people even though they've been scattered. Chapter 11 gives us a description of this kingly descendant of David and how the nation of Israel will be regathered to the land. The hope that is found in this passage is not that Jesus is born. It's not the hope. The hope is found in that Jesus is the king and that his kingdom will be perfect and everlasting. So the birth of Jesus is actually a down payment, so to speak, on the coming kingdom of Jesus. We cannot separate the significance of the first coming from the second coming. They go together. They are connected. They have a unified purpose. And so I want us to consider these two verses this morning. Now I want us to see in verse 6, so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Look at the first two lines with me, and here we see the sign of hope. The sign of hope. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This giving of a son, this birth of a child, obviously connects back to chapter 7, verse 14. Remember what it says in chapter 7, verse 14? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So it goes backwards to chapter 7, verse 14, and it points forward to chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. So the giving of this son that's recorded here in Isaiah 6 actually encompasses this whole prophetic context. Now let me ask you a question about the, some questions about the giving of this son. Question number one, who's the giver? Okay, it says a child is born, a son is given. We don't talk about sons being given. Nowhere in the Bible do we talk about sons being given. That's not the normal way that we talk about a birth. We don't talk about it being given. But here the son is given. Who's the giver of the son? Again, the context tells us the Lord is the giver. Chapter 7, verse 14 begins. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord himself is the giver. And this can't help but draw our attention all the way to the New Testament. To a really familiar and famous verse in the New Testament where it says, For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son. So the Lord is the giver. Now, to whom? To whom is the Son given? Well, look what it says in the verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us Son is given. Now, who's the us there? It is the Jews, the Jewish people. 
So a son is given. He is given by the Lord and he's given to the Jews. So this is all part of this sign of hope. Now, we can obviously see this direct connection between the giving of the son and the virgin conception that is predicted in chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 has given us more information about the sign that the Lord says he is going to give. And so the sign of hope is the birth of this son. The son that is given through the virgin conception. This sign of hope is because of the discipline that comes on the nation of Israel because of their disobedience and unbelief to the Lord. Because the Lord is removing the kingdom from Israel. But this sign of hope also says, I promise to restore the kingdom to you. So this is the sign of hope, the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you about signs. What do signs do? What do signs tell us? Signs say, pay attention to something else. Right? Pay attention to something. When you go out here, if you take a left out of the parking lot, you're going to run into a stoplight. That's a sign. Now, when you come to a stoplight, are you just supposed to sit there and stare at the light? No, you better be looking around to pay attention to what's happening in that intersection. That's the sign. The sign is never the thing of focus. The sign always points to the important thing, the thing that you're supposed to focus on. And so what are we supposed to focus on if the sign is the birth of the sun? We're supposed to focus on the substance of hope, the substance of hope. Not the sign of hope. The substance of hope is the person and purpose of the Son who has been given. Notice, continuing on in verse 6 here, notice what it says. And the government will be upon his shoulder. The Son will have responsibility to rule. The word government's the word dominion. Okay, that's probably a better translation. Dominion. We might even translate it as kingdom. And the dominion or the kingdom will be upon his shoulder. The right to rule and the authority to rule will rest on the sun. If I can summarize that, the sun will be the king. The sun will be the king over the dominion. And the dominion that is spoken of here is the dominion of the nation of Israel. The Son will be the king of the kingdom of Israel. Secondly, when we consider this idea of the substance of hope and the person and purpose of the Son, I want us to understand that the Son will be the perfect mediatorial ruler. Now, most of you have probably never heard that phrase, mediatorial ruler, before. Well, on Thursday evenings, we're studying the kingdom of God. 
And we have put a lot of work into understanding what's this idea of mediatorial ruler. But we see this concept here in this passage. Just keep on reading down through verse 6. It says, And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this is describing king, this king, this son who's going to be born, and he is going to be the perfect mediatorial ruler. A mediatorial ruler is simply someone who rules in the place or for someone else. He's a mediator. He mediates the rule of someone else. The foundation of this idea is found all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the heavens and the earth, He created man, and when He created man, God gave him that first man, Adam, he gave him the responsibility to have dominion over the earth. The first mediatorial ruler was Adam. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation. And uh, we see that there have been many mediatorial rulers throughout history. Of course, they, none of them have been perfect. None of them have completed their rule successfully. All of them have failed because they don't have the one requirement to be the perfect mediatorial ruler. The one requirement to be the perfect mediatorial ruler is that you have to be totally and perfectly righteous. Adam failed. We know he failed. Genesis 3 tells us he failed. God then set up another way to rule. He set up a government. After the flood, He set up government as a ruler. Government failed. When people get together, they fail. Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. The kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, they all failed. The kings that came after Solomon, all the kings of Judah, they all failed in one way or another because they did not possess perfect Righteousness. So how can we have a mediator? How can we have a mediatorial ruler who will rule perfectly? The answer is that person must be God. They must be divine. And that's where these four names come in. Let me read it again. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice the context here of these four names is all set in the context of a king and his kingdom. So they're all talking about qualities that the king and his kingdom possess. So Wonderful Counselor. This is indicating to us that the son who is king has the ability to make a perfect plan. He has the ability to have a perfect administration. Only God can do that. Mighty God. This son has absolute power and ability to do all that he wants and all that he has planned. By the way, the only person who can... Surely accomplish 
all that they have planned is God. Wonderful counselor goes right with being mighty God. Everlasting father. This speaks of the son's total and complete care over those who he rules. He can provide for all the needs of his dominion and for those in his dominion. And he is the prince of peace. The son will provide absolute peace. Interesting. On this Christmas Eve 2023, when we look over into the Middle East, what's the one thing we don't see? Peace. It's just turmoil. Total turmoil. And even if there were some type of peace, it wouldn't be a lasting peace. Was it 16 years ago that uh, Israel turned the Gaza Strip over so that they would be self-governing? Well, you think, well, that would, the two-state solution would be a solution to bring peace. Did it? No. No. There's no peace because there's only one who can bring lasting peace, that is the Prince of Peace. And the only way that that can happen is for him to be God. God is the only one that can bring political peace or spiritual peace. And so these four titles, these four names that we see in verse 6, all express qualities of the king, of the son. When they are combined together, they tell us that the son will be the perfect mediatorial ruler. He will be God's final king on the earth. So the reason for hope is that the son, that God the Father has given will be his perfect ruler on the earth. He will be the perfect king of the Jews. That's the reason for the hope. Verse 7 goes on to tell us about the son's rule. How is the son going to rule? What are some of the descriptions of his rule? Really quick, just notice these. Not much to say about this, but notice... It begins, verse 7 begins, of the increase of his government and peace, no end. So you see in your Bible where it says there will be no end, that's, that's not in the Hebrew. It just makes a point of exclamation and emphasis by saying, of the increase of his government and peace, no end. No end. So it's limitless. The rule of the sun is limitless. There is nothing that can lessen it. There is no one who can successfully oppose the rule of the Son. Secondly, we see here that the Son's rule fulfills the Davidic covenant. It fulfills the Davidic covenant. It says, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So this Son is going to sit on the throne of David, and I take that, that it is a literal throne and it's in Jerusalem, over the nation of Israel. By the way, that hasn't happened yet. That's still future. But this son is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant and be king over the Jews. Thirdly, we see that the son's rule involves the establishment and sustainment of the kingdom of Israel. It says, 
to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. So I'm going to try not to confuse you here, but I need to explain a couple of these words. The word order, okay, the word order is better translated establish. Now that's confusing because it already has established here. Just hang with me. The word order is better translated established because it pictures the restoration of the kingdom to the Jews. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel. The word we see here next in our Bibles, the word established, is better translated sustain. Sustain. So this is saying to establish this kingdom and to sustain this kingdom with judgment and justice. The manner in which the Son that is given by the Father, the manner in which He will establish and sustain the kingdom of Israel is through judgment and justice. Perfect rule. Perfect rule. Fourthly, the fourth thing we see about the Son's rule is that it's timeless. It's timeless. Keep on going down through verse 7. From that time forward, even forever. From the time that he establishes his kingdom forever, it is timeless. And then fifthly, the end of verse 7, we see that his rule is certain. It is certain. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord God himself, God the Father, is going to make this happen. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It might be resisted. It might be ignored. It might be rejected. But it cannot be stopped. The hope that we see here is that the king is coming. The hope is the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sign of his birth is meant to direct us to say, pay attention to who this person is and what he is going to do. So let me just summarize some of the key observations from this passage. The birth, the giving of the Son, secures and makes certain everything that follows it. In other words, once the birth of the Son happens, it guarantees that this Son will be king over Israel. We also find, this is the second point here, second key observation, we also find that the king is 100% human. He is born and he's of the descendants of David. He's related to David. He's 100% human. He has the biological right and legal right to the throne of David. Number three, the king is 100% God. The four names and titles we looked at, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all express divinity. These are things that can only be applied to God. Fourthly, the king's rule will be perfect, characterized by peace, establishing his kingdom and sustaining his kingdom with judgment and justice. And finally, the king's rule will be forever. No one will be able to take his reign from him. And so we see all this, very Jewish, 
There's nothing in here about Gentiles. Nothing in here about the church. This is hope for Israel. This is hope for Israel. And of course, our question would be, hopefully, what about us? What's our hope? Staying in the book of Isaiah, turn to chapter 49. Chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. I want us to look at verses 5 and 6. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And here we see the extension of the hope. So you follow me now? We've seen the sign of hope. We've seen the substance of hope. And here's the extension. The extension of hope. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. Let me just preface these verses with a little explanation about the context. Uh, This passage appears in the context that we call the servant passages, or maybe the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. You might have heard of that. And that tells us the context goes from chapter 41 through chapter 53, probably up to chapter 61. It's all about the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who the Lord is sending, and he's sending to restore the nation to Israel. The Messiah, the Redeemer in these passages, the servant in this passage, is the son who's been given in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So look at these verses with me. Verse 5, let me just read down through them here. And now the Lord... And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that's a name for the nation of Israel, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he, that is the Lord, says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles so that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In these two passages, we see that God has two purposes for giving the Son. Two purposes for giving his servant, the Messiah, the Redeemer. Purpose one, we see that in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. This purpose, the first purpose that God has, the initial purpose, the primary purpose even, that God has in sending his son into the world and providing a Redeemer and providing the Messiah is to restore the kingdom to Israel. You see that? Verse 5. Look right in the middle of the verse. To bring Jacob back to him. The Messiah, the Redeemer, is going to draw the Jews back to the Lord God so that Israel is gathered to him. They're going to come to him. Then in verse 6, it's too small a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. This is the the first purpose. But notice what it says, that this purpose is too small a thing for the servant of the Lord. It is too small a thing for the Redeemer. It's too small a thing for the Son who has been given. So he gives a second purpose. The Son has a second purpose. The second purpose is to provide salvation to the entire earth. I will also give you. You see that? Verse 6. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. Is there any Gentiles here? Yeah. (laughs) We're Gentiles. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles for the purpose that you, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Redeemer, should be my salvation to the end of the earth. God the Father has given God the Son, given Him as a son who's born as a child. He has given Him to restore the kingdom to Israel and to provide the rest of the earth with salvation. This is the purpose. This is the extension that God has, through which God has given us here hope. There's hope for the Jews in Israel, and there's hope for everyone else. And this hope comes through the same person the child that is born and the son that is given. Now, real quickly, just want to explain how this has happened in history. Because let me ask you a question. Is Jesus sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem today? No. I mean, the fact that you can't see him there, that's one thing. The other fact that there's no peace in Jerusalem right now is another thing. Okay? Jesus is not there today. He's not sitting on David's throne today. Well, how do we explain that? How do we make sense of that? Let me walk you through. I'm not going to read the Scripture passages. I'll just mention them in passing. But I want us to see that from a historical perspective, the sign has been given, but the hope is anticipated. The sign's been given, okay, but the hope is still anticipated. So in Matthew chapter 1, we have the announcement of the sign that's given to Joseph. And the Lord tells Joseph in a dream, don't be afraid to marry Mary, to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to bring forth a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And Matthew goes on to say that the birth, of Jesus is a fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And he quotes it. He says, the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of this sign that the Lord says he's going to give, that a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Okay, Matthew tells us Jesus' birth is a fulfillment of that. By the way, when Isaiah wrote, He didn't write the Numbers chapter 7 
or verse 14. He just wrote. And so when Matthew refers to this prophecy, he's referring to the entire prophecy that goes from chapter 7 to chapter 12. But we see the, the announcement of the sign that was given to Joseph. We see the accomplishment of the sign. In Luke 2, we see that this was accomplished. It says the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought first forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swathing clothes and laid him in a manger because there's no room for them in the end. So it was accomplished. And so the sign has been announced and it has been accomplished. And then we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ that the hope is then announced. The hope begins to be announced with John the Baptist. What's John the Baptist's message? Everybody that comes on Thursday night ought to know this. What's the message of John the Baptist? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John announces that, he's saying the king is coming and he's going to offer you Jews the kingdom. Then... Jesus says the exact same thing as John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus says that, Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm the king, I'm offering you the kingdom. Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, only go to the Jews and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples are supposed to tell people, Jesus is the king, And he's offering you the kingdom. So the hope is announced. The hope that Jesus is king over Israel is announced. Jesus is offering the the kingdom to the Jews. But it doesn't take us very long. It only goes to Matthew chapter 12. When we see that this offer that Jesus has made to the Jews to be their king and restore the kingdom to them has been rejected. And now it's postponed. So why isn't Jesus on the throne of David in Jerusalem today? Because the Jews rejected his offer when he first came. And now that offer is being postponed for another generation. It will be accomplished, but it's being postponed. And I want you to see the certainty of the accomplishment of the hope. I want you to see where the hope is accomplished. Now I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And I just want to read verses 11 through 16. Verses 11 through 16. This passage comes after the church has been raptured. It comes at the end of seven years of the tribulation, the worst time that's been on earth ever. It comes at the end of that. It comes... When the kings of the earth are gathered with the Antichrist to come fight against 
God. And here's what it says. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in the heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. In the rest of that chapter, it goes on to describe this battle and the results of that battle and how the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire and how Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. The thousand year millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ here on the earth. So we have the sign of hope. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. We have the substance of the hope because the sign points to the substance and the substance is who that son is and what he will do. We have the expansion or extension of that hope so that we as Gentiles, have a hope as, as well, the hope of salvation. And we see that there's an explanation as to why that hope is not yet in place, but it will be. It is certain. It is sure. And so this morning, I want you to be reminded, I want you to be encouraged and even challenged that the sign of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ teaches us the certainty of all the things connected to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The birth is the sign that says all of this is true and all of it will happen. It is the birth of Jesus Christ that confirms to us two reasons, two purposes for his coming. First, to be the king of the Jews. And secondly, to be the savior of the world. This is repeated throughout the Bible. In John chapter 1, verse 10, we see that Jesus was in the world. Jesus made the world. Jesus was not known by the world. In verse 11, we see that Jesus came to his own people. That's the Jews. But Jesus was not received by his own people. They did not accept him as Messiah and King. But verse 12 begins with a very important word in the Bible. This is a very theological word, technical word, but I want you to pay attention to it. Verse 12 begins with the word, but. But. To those who receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to be children 
of God. We see this same thing show up in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You know, the first 15 verses of John chapter 13 are Jewish. They're exclusively Jewish. Jesus, a Jew, is talking to another Jew, Nicodemus. He's talking to him about Jewish things, the kingdom of God. He gives him a Jewish name, son of man. Then when you get to verse 16, you have a global shift. Because you know what verse 16 says. For God so loved the world. So it goes from being exclusively Jewish to now inclusive of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son to the world. And God is inviting the world to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Because if you want to have the hope, Jesus is King and Jesus is Savior, if you want to have that hope, you have to place your trust in Jesus Christ. There's only two possible destinies for all people. There's condemnation and there's salvation. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior... You will be saved. You will be given everlasting life. That's salvation. If you don't trust in Jesus as your Savior, you will perish and you will be condemned. That's God's judgment. Condemnation. If you've already put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, be encouraged today. His birth means that your salvation is secure and He will come again. If you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the future is just as certain for you. But be sure, it will be judgment. But you don't have to face this. Jesus not only was born, as we've seen, to be the King of the Jews, but He's also born to be Savior. He was born and then he went to the cross and he died for your sins. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day, just as the Bible predicted that he would. And you can have the salvation that God is offering through Jesus Christ by admitting to God you're a sinner, that you've sinned against him, acknowledging the truth of Jesus, that he died for your sins. He died to give you forgiveness from sins and that he was raised again on the third day, that he lives today. And accept God's gift of salvation. Accept God's gift of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Put your trust in him. Put your total confidence and Him for your life and your salvation. This is the hope that we see in the Bible. Won't you stand with me? We'll close in a word of prayer. Let me just remind everybody that you're welcome to stay and have refreshments with us, and then we'll be gathering back in the auditorium at 11.15 or so. And we'll have our carol service.
So let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and we're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for the sacrifice that you made of giving your son, sending him into the world to be born as a little baby. We're thankful for the clarity of Scripture that tells us why he came into the world. It tells us what we should pay attention to. It tells us the solution for the greatest problem in our life. It tells us the solution of how we have sinned against you. And so, Father, we come before you, and it is our burden and it's our desire that if there are those who hear this message, either here this morning or on our YouTube channel or wherever it might be, that they would be convicted of their sin. That they would be convinced that today is the day they need to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's no guarantees for tomorrow. There's no guarantees that we'll even make it into the next hour. Lord, I pray that everyone here has made certain in their heart with you that their destiny is secure and that one day they will be with you. Father, too, we ask your blessing on the rest of our time together this morning. We ask your blessing on this fellowship time that we have and then on the carol service that follows. And Lord, we ask for you to be with those who couldn't be here with us this morning. Encourage them today. And we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.